The George Washington College of Professional Studies Paralegal Studies programs are a proud sponsor of the DC Bar. You'll study with the nation's leading experts and get the critical knowledge and skills you need to enter legal, corporate, healthcare, or government practice with confidence and acumen. Whether you are looking to advance in your career or make a change, GW's academic rigor is matched with hands-on, real-time learning that will help you stand out among your peers and rise to the next level in your profession. To request more information about this program, please visit the link found in the description for this episode. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast made for law students by law students. I'm Sydney Taylor. And I'm Andrew Nettles. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the practice of animal law. As we will discuss in today's episode, animal law is a developing area of jurisprudence, both domestically and internationally. It is difficult to conceptualize the institutional barriers faced by those developing the field. How can we begin to reform a legal system that recognizes the personhood of a multi-billion dollar corporation while also treating chimpanzees capable of learning sign language as property? To learn more about this issue, we are joined today by our guests, Kelly Davis and Dean Kathy Hessler. Kelly is a legal intern at ALDF and a 3L at George Washington Law School. Dean Hessler is the Assistant Dean for Animal Legal Education at George Washington Law, Director of the Animal Legal Education Initiative, and a Professor of Law for over 30 years. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Looking forward to it. Before we brief it, can you give us an overview of the topic of animal law for those who are unfamiliar? Sure. Animal law is a really broad area of developing jurisprudence. If we think about all of the ways in which we have interactions with animals in our current lives, there are legal issues that relate to all of them. So how we treat animals as companions, how animals are treated in entertainment facilities, in research facilities, when they're being raised and bred for food, when they're being transported across the country or across the world, how we treat them, protect them, or don't in the wild. Everywhere that animals exist, there are legal questions that we need to address, and this is something the law is only beginning to catch up to. Could you give us a brief overview of the developing animal law curriculum at GW Law and also your experience as uh, the director of the very first animal law clinic during your time at Lewis and Clark University Law School? Sure. So it was wonderful to be running the animal law clinic at Lewis and Clark. For people who don't know, Law clinics within law schools are like mini law firms, and they provide the opportunity to offer services to clients who might not otherwise get them, either because they can't afford legal services or because it's the kind of law that isn't well practiced, and at the same time, train law students how to be lawyers. And so it's this wonderful opportunity within the law school to both educate students, help them engage in their public interest obligations, serve the community. And then sometimes, as in the case of the animal law clinic, work on an emerging field of law where there aren't as many other opportunities for students to work on that outside the law school. So the law clinic took on a variety of kinds of cases. We took on local, national, and international cases. We worked on cases such as the PETA lawsuit that dealt with Tilikum at SeaWorld. We worked on developing the first legislative protection for animals in divorce situations by uh, testifying before the Alaska State Legislature to include the consideration of animals during divorces. And what I mean by that is animals are treated as property. That's our, our starting proposition, both in the United States and around the world. 
And that doesn't work, right? Because animals aren't, they're sentient. They aren't inanimate property in the way that the law tends to treat them. And so what we end up having is significant dissonance with the ways in which we engage with animals and the ways in which the law treats them. And so a divorce situation is just one example of that. People treat the animals in their home as companions, as, as family members. And then when they divorce, you can't treat them as property because if they were property, you could just sell them and split the proceeds, or you could determine what their economic value is and then offset that with one of the partners. And so it's important to think about what that relationship with the animal is. And the courts now in five states in the United States can actually look at what the interest of the animal is. So what home is the best home for this animal in a divorce? In the same way that you might, or in at least a similar way that you might for children. And what will a care of this animal look like afterwards? And does the partner who's not living with the animal get to see that animal, visit with that animal, because there's a relationship that they want to have ongoing? So now we have statutory framework, at least in some states, for judges to engage in that conversation, try and help the parties resolve that so that there aren't disputes afterwards and so that people can maintain a relationship with the animals they love. So that's just one example. Other things that we did in the legal clinic, we worked with international clients. We worked with clients who ran uh, an animal protection organization in Cameroon. We helped do white papers for the Green Party of Ireland to develop marine protected areas. We worked on a betta fish consumer class action case saying that the tanks that were being sold for betta fish were too small. It's a violation of both of animal welfare and consumer protection. Pretty much anything that you can think about research, uh, animals used in research, animals used for food production. We worked on in pieces or parts. And it's been really exciting to be involved in this evolving area of law, but also to help students develop careers in this area, because this is an area of law that's embedded in all other areas of law. And most people aren't aware of that, haven't seen it, don't know what to do with that and need some help, right? Seeing these issues. So one of the, the ways in which I often describe this for folks who are really new to this area is think about an animal who's been abused and there's a abuse or neglect claim. The police come and perhaps arrest a person for abusing an animal. The animal, him or herself, would be seen as evidence of the crime, of the alleged crime. And evidence tends to go into the evidence locker at the police station, you know, like think drugs, cocaine, that sort of thing, guns. You can't put a dog or a cat into an evidence locker, right? And you can't because even though we see them legally as property, they are not inanimate property. And so this dissonance is a good example of how the law fails to see animals for who they are and therefore protect them in the ways in which they need protecting. So moving forward, developing the law had been one of the, the main focuses at Lewis and Clark. And now at GW, we want to also make that development of the law and development of animal legal education sustainable going forward. And that's one of the main focal points of the work here at GW. So we're expanding the curriculum, we're adding all kinds of events and projects, but the idea is to help people see where these animal law questions arise across the jurisprudence, across the legal education curriculum, across the conversation. So people can decide for themselves how they want to engage in this, but but we often say it, it's like tax law. You don't have to practice it, but you have an ethical obligation to see the issues and maybe make appropriate referrals because you can't just ignore 
these legal questions as they continue to arise. Kelly, can you sort of delve into what inspired you to look further into animal law, especially some of the curricular offerings at GW, and any advice you'd offer to a law student interested in this emerging field? Yes, so my journey into animal law is quite that. It was a journey. Initially, I've always been interested in nature and the environment. I grew up in Florida near the beaches, and I just kind of developed an appreciation of the environment around me, but also the animals that I would, you know, go and be able to see. I remember going in on the beach during nesting season to see turtles lay eggs, and it's just I had that innate appreciation. But coming into law school, I didn't think that I could really do anything with that appreciation that I had. I really only thought, okay, I can do environmental law and animals are involved with that. But I really thought the only way to do that would be with working for Fish and Wildlife Service. Like there really wasn't much else beyond that. And I actually first spoke with Dean Randy Abate. He was my coach for an international environmental moot court. And I had just mentioned on a whim that I'm from Florida. I really enjoyed the Endangered Species Act and I'm really interested in in animals. And he was like, I have somebody that you should talk to. You should talk to Dean Kathleen Hessler. And that just kind of kicked everything off. And it really opened my eyes to all of the different areas that you can practice in. It's, It's not just wild animals and the Endangered Species Act. No, no, no. There's so many more things to really jump into and to discover. So I think at GW, kind of speaking to your uh, earlier question about curriculum and things like that, I think for me, interacting with professors and the deans really helped give me that foundation. And then jumping into the programs that GW has, I got plugged in with the Animal Welfare Project, which really gave me an idea on like the legislative side of things, projects that are working to advocate for animals here in the district. And really, if you're interested in this emerging field, I think it's a matter of reaching out to individuals, get educated and, and find people to speak with. Everybody that I've interacted with in the animal law field has been more than happy and helpful to get more people involved and really help you figure out your interests and take those interests and apply it to where you could be in such a field. And touching a little bit more on that, it sounds really exciting, Your both your work with the Animal Welfare Project, and also if you could discuss a little bit more your legal externship that you're currently participating in with the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and just some of the exciting work that you've been doing in that field. Yes, uh, working at ALDF has been amazing. I, I do want to preface this, that I am an extern at ALDF, and the information that I'm sharing here are not that of ALDF. They are my own personal opinions and beliefs. But working at ALDF has just been awesome. I'm in the Legislative Affairs Program. I have always had an interest in, in legislation. It's been a side interest, and I really have just kind of taken it and run with it at ALDF. I really cover a wide variety of things. It's not just a legal education. Of course, I'm doing memos. Of course, I'm writing things, getting that background research and knowledge for a potential bill that ALDF may want, maybe really pushing for. But I also get the legislative tracking side of things. I'm examining bills that are assigned to me by my boss, and I'm looking and seeing, is this the kind of bill that ALDF should support? Really getting into the nitty gritties of the definitions, looking at every single term to make sure that this is really supposed to be protecting and advocating for animals. So that's one portion of my work is looking at these bills and figuring out, should ALDF support? Should we not? Another portion of my work is the written testimony side of things. If there is a bill in a state legislature, like for example, 
in Florida, there's a retail pet sales ban that is in the works. And is I wrote a piece of written testimony for that just to really highlight for the committee, this is why this issue should be important to you. And this is why you should support this bill. I haven't written on the opposite side of things to tell them why you shouldn't vote for a bill. So far, there's really been some exciting bills that are coming out that I'm able to write. And that's kind of the written testimony side of things. And then the other chunk of my work are doing those legal memos. If we have a, a new issue that's popping up or that we want to write a bill on, but we're really looking for that underlying legal justification, what can we do? What can't we do? That's kind of where I come in and I'm able to write those memos and then send it out to whoever needs it. So those are kind of the three buckets of my work at the Legislative Affairs Program at ALDF. Now, I have a question for both of you. Can you describe some injustices currently being committed against animals, both domestically and internationally, and ways in which you believe the developing field of animal law is best equipped to deal with reform in those areas? Oh, man, I'm trying to like, there's so many options that just come to my mind, especially with AWP and all of the different projects that we're working on that just kind of comes to my mind. One of the ones that I was recently working on is cosmetic testing bans. That's been something that personally, I've always, I love makeup. And, you know, growing up, I really didn't know too much about animal testing and things like that. But I think overall, the public shift in understanding what goes into cosmetic testing and seeing how so many other countries have gone ahead and passed these bans. I think that's something that it's kind of something that shouldn't really be thought of. Why are we putting makeup in things that could possibly harm humans? Why are we even doing that and testing it on animals? To me, it just doesn't make sense, especially when there's so, you know, developing technology out there, computer models and things like that. Why are we even considering that animals should even be an option to have testing done on? I guess that's one of the first thing that kind of comes to my mind. And the very similar kind of discussion can be said for using animals in, in research and other aspects, not just cosmetic testing, but for other things as well. To me, it just doesn't make sense if technology is supposed to be new and advancing. Why are we still using animals? I think that Kelly said it very well. And the example she gave is an example of how we treat animals generically, both as societies and also legally. So we have old traditions that we use with respect to animals because we didn't have alternatives, but now we have alternatives. And the challenge is those traditions, those traditional ways of being, if you will, and I'm not talking about old, old traditions, right? Because more indigenous traditions are much more respectful in their relationships with animals, but at least historically going back a little while, those ways of interacting with animals get ossified in the law, right? So they get standardized and normalized, and then people don't think about them anymore. And it's not that we haven't really thought about animals as being sentient going back thousands of years. It's just that, especially in modern society, you know, the structure of society tends to reduce beings to values, right? And that's human beings sometimes as well as uh, non-human beings. And so if we're thinking about the economic value then we're thinking about how can we most efficiently use animals. And that has been the trajectory we've been on for quite a long time. And it's a very, very destructive one, not just for the animals, but for the environment and for humans. So just taking further the concept that Kelly was talking about, the use of animals as replacement models for humans for testing comes about for all kinds of reasons, some of which make sense, right? If, if we're trying to avoid the atrocities that we discovered in, say, Nazi Germany, right, of testing 
using human subjects without their consent. That's horrific and we shouldn't be doing it. But we should take those principles, the values, what we learned from that horror and apply that across the spectrum and say, first of all, we, we just shouldn't do this unless we absolutely think we have to. And so let's find ways that we don't have to. Number two, let's be aware that it's not really working, right? It's, it's just not particularly effective because humans are different than animals. Not only that, humans are different than humans. We find that sometimes drug testing doesn't work when it's been tested on male subjects and it's being used for females, right? So the ways in which we think about the human body and all of the environmental impacts and on the, you know, all the things that go into making up who we are makes it much more complicated to think about what's going to be effective in the biomedical space, in the pharmaceutical space. And so we have to get much more adept at thinking about alternatives. The very, very good news is that we are moving in that direction pretty rapidly. So we have alternatives to the use of animals for research, and we have alternatives that are much more effective, much more efficient, and cheaper. So we can get a better result, cheaper and faster. But what we need is for the law to understand that, to support that transition, and to give those new protocols the same kind of legal protection, both in terms of intellectual property and so forth, so that people will invest in them and use them and make sure that they get the regulatory protection that they need to become a part of the research system, right? So it's very, very sort of complicated. But what we see is that the use of animals as a default has become so entrenched that we don't look at it. So if we think about other areas, we think about the use of animals for food, and that's just not necessary, right? So right now, it's not going to change overnight, but we have nutritious, efficient, cost-effective methods of getting appropriate food to people that don't include animals. And if you think about the fact that we're raising tons of crops to feed to animals in factory farms, to feed to humans, it's completely inefficient. It's horrible for the environment. The workers tend to be treated poorly. The sort of parade of horribles goes on and on. And we're doing this, sort of coming back to your question about evolving areas. We're doing this not just on the land, but we're doing it in the seas now. We're doing it in the oceans. And we are decimating populations of animals. We're fishing animals out of the ocean to feed to other fish or other aquatic beings or other terrestrial beings to then raise to feed to humans, right? It, it, the cycle is, is ridiculous and we're decimating the habitat of the planet. And again, if people don't care about animals, that's fine, but they should care about the health and well-being of the planet as a whole. And so it inures to the benefit of humans to start questioning what we're doing, to stop this sort of rampaging and seeing animals as a, an endless supply of resources for us to do all kinds of things with, right? If we can begin to ask ourselves questions, what are we doing? Are there alternatives? Are there better ways to do this? Right? And what are the harms? And how can we reduce these harms while we're making some transitory steps? Then we'll be in a much, much better place. The problem is that's not a space the law is really comfortable with, right? So the law is like, what is the law? What's allowed? What's not allowed? That's all I need to know. That's the conversation before the court. And so the work that Kelly and others are doing and that we'll be doing at GW to move these conversations forward hopefully will help the conversations move more quickly. So for instance, we have the Aquatic Animal Law Project, which is sponsoring the World Aquatic Animal Day, where we'll be having these conversations about aquatic animals in particular. We have the Animal Law and Science Project, which talks about the need for lawyers and scientists to understand the conversations that they're having in the legal setting better. Lawyers don't really understand scientific language and vice versa. 
but we need this data. We need good scientific data and we need to be able to bring it to legislators and judicial officers so that we can make better decisions and we can have better conversations. So we have a number of projects like that. We have new courses in curricula. And as you can tell, Kelly and I could talk about this for quite a while, but I'll stop there so you can ask other questions. Definitely. That's amazing. Kelly, I was wondering if there are any courses you would recommend to law students, uh, maybe courses that you have taken or are currently taking that you find helpful in your uh, experience in the field with your externship. And Dean Pessler, I would ask the same question as well. And then if both of you could talk more about the intersection of animal law with other legal topics, such as criminal law, property law, human rights law, et cetera. Yes. So I came into the animal law game a little late. So I unfortunately was not able to take the animal law course that's offered at GW. But what I find in my work, especially that was kind of drawn upon in my application when I was applying to the legislative affairs program was my experience within administrative law and environmental law and having that regulatory background. Even though the legislative affairs program is legislation, they don't really deal too much with the regulatory scheme of things. Having that background and having that other perspective of, okay, well, we really can't do anything maybe with Congress or the state legislature. Let's look at the regulatory side of things. What's something we can do with the agency that could advance the rights of whatever animal rights issue that we're dealing with? So I would say that admin background and that environmental background was really important bringing that into animal law, especially considering that environmental and animal can intersect with each other, uh, which has been really, really fun to explore, especially dealing with factory farming. There's so many issues on the animal law side of things about how animals are treated, how animals should not even be used as food and the terrible and horrendous conditions that they're in. But also there's the negative impact to communities of color and low-income populations that are around factory farming. And personally, that's where I really enjoy that cross-section that I find really intriguing between environmental and animal law is with factory farming. I find that extremely interesting. Next year at GW, we're going to have four animal law courses, and a couple of them answer the question about intersectionality uh, almost in their titles. So we'll have the general animal law course, and we're going to have hot topics in animal law, which actually is an opportunity to look at how animal law is evolving across disciplines. But we're going to have also crimes against animals. And that's going to be not just the way in which people tend to think about it, which is crimes against companion animals, but crimes against wild animals, crimes against animals in a factory farm setting, for instance. So crimes against animals very broadly. And we're also going to have a course that uh, Ethelin Gebert teaches, which is called Gender, Race, Species, which, as you can tell, is a very intersectional course talking about sort of systems of oppression and the ways in which the legal systems view different vulnerable populations. And those are a couple of intersections. Kelly already mentioned the intersection between animal law and environmental law. What I would suggest to students is if there's an area of law that you're drawn to and you're interested in animals, look for the intersection there. So we've talked a little bit about family law. You can think about pet trusts and wills and trust courses. You can think about constitutional law, the, the issue of standing, the issue of legal personhood in civil procedure. You can think about all kinds of issues, pretty much if anyone has a question about where the animal law is, come and talk to me because I'm happy to tell you it's there. There are animal law issues in pretty much every area of the law. And so you can begin to look at that and, and folks not just at GW, but folks anywhere. There are CLEs. Our, our program is 
putting online all of the content that we're developing. So World Aquatic Animal Day is April 3rd. We're going to have a panel that people can attend both remotely and in person. And we're trying to get folks all across the world to participate in World Aquatic Animal Day. Last year, we had folks participating from 87 countries. And we hope we'll have that kind of engagement again this year. Our Law and Science Project will be doing webinars, uh, sort of Law 101 for scientists and Science 101 for lawyers that, again, we're going to be posting on our website and have as resources available to everyone. So all of the work that we'll be doing, we'll be building out the, the website so that we can make these resources useful for folks all across the country and beyond. And if students have any questions, our student chapter of the Animal Legal Defense Fund are great. Our students are wonderful and happy to help plug you into resources and in their student groups at schools around the country. There's a couple of other animal lab programs with wonderful people. So the resources are growing and we can point you to the resources that might be most useful as you're thinking about your, as a student, your curriculum and your development, if this is the career pathway that you're interested in. I also want to jump in really quickly and say that there are also increasingly in bar associations, animal law bar association groups. And I think even if you're in a state that maybe doesn't have as prominent of an animal law program at your law school, maybe reaching out to a bar association to help you find those attorneys and individuals to put you in contact to ask those questions about animal law, I think is another resource that you can definitely use. And the wonders of webinars have been amazing. They have definitely especially helped me get up to speed on a lot of issues in animal law. And I cannot emphasize enough how great these webinars are and to definitely take it full advantage of them. And I'll add really quickly that the development of animal law, both within law schools and elsewhere, comes a lot from student initiative. Students have created animal law defense, animal legal defense fund chapters. Students have asked for courses, brought in adjuncts. So if you're interested, reach out to us. But There's a lot we can do to help you wherever you are. That's awesome. I've definitely been given a lot to think about, especially as I have course registration coming up um, in two weeks from now. So I'll definitely be on the lookout for those courses that we mentioned. And thank you so much for joining us today. It was absolutely uh, a pleasure speaking with you. Yes, thank you so much for joining us today. We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today as well. And we'd like to thank the DC Bar for hosting us. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This episode of Let's Brief It was brought to you in part by our sponsor, the George Washington College of Professional Studies Paralegal Studies Programs. For more information, visit the link found in the description for this episode. The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in substantive content programming, leadership trainings, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org. We look forward to hearing from you.